The Masked Marauder saga comes to its end as Mike Murdock faces death, and Spider-Man is here too, so that ought to sell a few books. Welcome to episode 46 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the podcast that looks week to week at Daredevil, the man without fear. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but of course, you can call me Dave. This week, the Masked Marauder saga comes to its riveting close, and we look at the first real attempt to give Daredevil an ongoing arch nemesis. Before we do that, I've been uh, defending the 2003 Daredevil movie in segments, and I'm going to continue that this week. This time, taking a look at what I call the short film, because it, it's pretty much self-contained. Now, picking up where the origin left off, Matt begins his day. He wakes up in his sensory deprivation tank, which I could do with or without, not a deal breaker. And we see him prepare for court, which uh, really there's a high level of detail here too. You see him looking through his suits, each one is labeled in braille. He folds his money, based on the bill, in a certain pattern. And we have his watch with the braille hands. A lot of good detail went into this. I know a lot of research was devoted to how does a blind person go about their day. And I'm somebody who appreciates that kind of detail. The mindset was correct in trying to present a lot of Matt Murdock. And this brings us to a great scene in a courtroom with, well, Jose Quezada, accused rapist. It does establish a lot. It establishes our lie detector ability and Matt's anger at injustice and, of course, that he is a lawyer. And an idealistic lawyer at that. It's a very quick overview of Matt Murdock, and it works. It doesn't devote too much time to it. We get right into the action because, at this point, the runtime of the movie is at 20-25 minutes. And then we go directly to Daredevil, his big suiting up. We get lots of leaping and swinging, and he goes after Kazada, who he finds at Josie's bar. Now, I do want to note, yes, Jose Kazada is named after Joe Kazada, then Marvel Editor-in-Chief, and the main artist on Daredevil's revamp with Kevin Smith in 1999. And for a movie that does its name dropping, this is one where, if it were me, I wouldn't want my name attached to an accused rapist. But clearly, Joey Q does not have such qualms. And of course, this leads to a big confrontation in Josie's Bar, one that's extended quite a bit in the director's cut. While most of the action moves really quick, it's dark, it's a little confusing, it still feels right because, well, it should be chaotic. And of course, we have the burning pool tables. Let's be honest, we could all do without the burning pool tables. Aesthetically, it meant nothing, and logistically, it just doesn't make sense. Sure, spilling alcohol is one thing, it could catch it on fire, but all of them? In one uniform? I can't buy it. It's just an attempt to make the scene more dramatic, and it looks kind of ridiculous. And of course, Daredevil catches up with Kazada in a train station, where Kazada pulls a gun on Daredevil. In one deft move, Daredevil disarms Kazada and knocks him onto the tracks, where Kazada is then run over by a train. Now, this bothers me. This bothers me a lot, because, okay, it's not a murder. Daredevil doesn't throw him intentionally on the train, he's in a defensive stance. But he does taunt Kazada as the train is coming. As we've seen in the pages of Daredevil, Daredevil is not above pulling somebody off of a train track to save them, because it's the right thing to do. But, that's the thing. What did Matt set out to do to Kazada? 
Jose Quezada's already been tried and acquitted. He can't be tried again because of double jeopardy. So what is it Matt wanted to do? Get a confession out of him, I would hope? Or was this the end game all along that Quezada was going to pay with his life? Or is Daredevil just going to beat him up and hope that he doesn't do it again? I don't know. And that's the thing, is that it lacks a little bit of focus. We know he's going after the bad guy, but why? Normally you want to bring the bad guy in so they can stay in trial, especially if you're Matt Murdock who values the law. That ambiguity has always bothered me, and I try to chew on it one way or the other because we are seeing an evolution of a hero, but, in my opinion, Daredevil has never been an anti-hero. He's been a hero. He's been a hero that's been put in bad situations where he's had to react with what is available, which is sometimes anti-hero tactics. But that's just the nature of being a hard luck superhero. Sometimes you gotta do what you don't want to do in order to achieve a greater good, or sometimes just survive. And so with that, I kind of justify it as Daredevil defended himself, he knocked the guy down, and true, maybe Daredevil at this stage couldn't rescue Kazada. I'm not sure. But as a fan of Richard Lester's Superman 2, I've justified a lot of things in comic book movies over the years, like cellophane S's. Really inconvenient cellophane S's. Or spinning the Earth on its axis, which didn't actually happen. Superman just flew back in time. So with this, I can understand, okay, we've got an arc where Daredevil is finding real balance. Again, what is vengeance and what is justice? And we saw a scenario like this in Batman Begins. I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. And of course we have the hero coming home, worn out, he's in pain, he's a very human hero, and definitely they wanted to communicate that. And they did. And Affleck sells this. He looks worn out, he looks like he's had the crap beat out of him. We see a lot of medications in his medicine cabinet, which, yeah, okay, most doctors would be, what's going on here? That would definitely be suspected of drug abuse, but we also have him yanking out that tooth. Which, let's be honest, this movie features a lot of Ben Affleck's teeth. I mean, they are featured right up front. Those veneers look glorious. So yanking out a tooth, eh. I get that you're going for a certain mood. Definitely wanted to try to sell the darkness, but yanking out a tooth, not the way to go. But again, they are wanting to communicate he's a very street-level human hero who can be hurt, and will be. And of course, Matt ends his day. The extended cut picks this up, though. As he's going to lay down in his sensory deprivation tank, we have this phantom murder victim named Lisa Tazio, who's going to play into the overall plot of the director's cut. And a subplot that I think adds a lot to this movie. And that kind of regret was pulled from the theatrical cut. And, it, you know, he's haunted. He's not just human in his physical frailty. He's human in what he's not able to accomplish sometimes. He can't be everywhere. He can't do everything. He's one man, and yes, the theme is one man can make a difference, but he can't make all the difference. He couldn't be there for Lisa Tazio, it was far too late. And then, a wonderful flashback of the director's cut shows Matt laying in the hospital as a kid after his accident, and a nun leaves over, kissing his forehead, of course this being his mother Maggie. As I described it, this is a short film, I mean, this reminded me a lot of a really good, high-quality fan film. A little bit over the top, don't get me wrong. Because they juggle him leaping from ridiculous heights sometimes, doing impossible flips, and then try to contrast it against, you know, coming home, hurt, worn out, just like you and I would be after a long day at work. But ultimately, it does its job. It establishes who Daredevil is, what he does, and, you know, we've seen why he does it. So from here, we've had two vignettes. We've had the origin, which could stand on its own, and then this short film that stands on its own as well. Or, put these two together, one good circuit. So next week, we're going to pick up with this discussion with when the rubber hits the road, Electra shows up, or somebody called Electra. Let's call it what it is. But it, the biggest complaint I would have while I enjoy this is, again, Daredevil's a hero, not an anti-hero. 
And while, yes, we're used to Daredevil doing the impossible, sometimes on screen, if you're going to try to sell him as this human character, you need to tone it down. But again, we'll pick up with this next week. This week, the Masked Marauder's final play to get revenge on Daredevil. I'm going to fill in the gaps. Where has he been? What's he been doing? What's happened since Daredevil number 17? All of this and more as we dive into the riveting conclusion in Daredevil number 27 right after this podcast promo. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, folks, we are back and we're in for... Well, a bit of a doozy this week as far as Daredevil number 27 is concerned. This was the April 1967 cover date. And really, the signal should have been right at the beginning with the cover. The cover itself shows Daredevil standing in the center, pulling his trusty billy cub from its holster as figures stand at all four corners. Spider-Man swings in on the upper left with a little arrow saying, guest starring the one and only intimidable Spider-Man. The Masked Marauder, whose end is promised here, is in the lower left-hand corner, pointing a gun at Daredevil. Stiltman rises upward on his hydraulic legs in the upper right-hand corner, with a little bubble that says, Who's afraid of Stiltman? And Foggy and Karen in the lower right-hand corner. Karen asking Foggy what can they do, and Foggy says we're going to resort to sheer panic. And this, this may be the most boring, plain cover ever. The art's beautiful. Don't get me wrong, it's Gene Colan. And let's be honest, you're never going to hear me gripe about a Gene Colan piece of art. So the figure work is great. They all look good in terms of each character. But this is not tied together in any real context. It's just cast against a yellow backdrop. So it's not telling me a story. It's not enticing me to read the story within. And I should have seen the signs there. Now, I tend to lean on the positive side. Let's draw what we can out of this. Let's bring a good discussion to the table. And I'll be honest, this issue caused some challenges on that front. But let me tell you about the story, which is Mike Murdoch must die. Mike Murdoch being, of course, Matt Murdoch's fake twin brother, who's really Matt. Did you keep track of that? It's, of course, written by Stan Lee, with art by Gene Effing Colon, inked by Frank Giacoya, and lettered by Artie Simic. And if you can't find a decent-priced copy of this issue, worry no more. It is reprinted in Marvel Adventure No. 6, Essential Daredevil Volume 2 Trade Paperback, Marvel Masterworks Volume 41, which is the Daredevil Volume 3 hardcover, and it's on Comixology, Marvel Digital, and it is in the Digital Unlimited subscription service. And this is kind of picking up on what we covered way back when, my first issue of Daredevil, issue number 26, which featured Stiltman. And after the re-emergence of Stiltman, Daredevil is searching the city for the High Tower villain when he happens upon Spider-Man busting some car thieves. Hornhead gives the webhead a hand with the car thieves and asks Spider-Man to save Stiltman just for him. Stiltman, however, is in a secret cave where he is getting a pitch from Masked Marauder to team up and take on Daredevil. 
the Marauder's new invention is a helicopter that emits a disintegration force field around it. And that seems to sell Stiltman on the team-up. And his first mission? To visit the offices of Nelson and Murdoch to explore their connection to Daredevil. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment and look at the book so far. We open this page to Daredevil leaping over a statue, like a leapfrog. Not like the villain leapfrog, but like the action, the game. It's of course exquisite because it's Gene Colan, and let's be honest, Gene Colan will always be loved on this show. And that's followed by two panels on, page, on the subsequent two pages of Daredevil swinging. Again, Wally Wood began to craft the look, a distinctive look for Daredevil. Ramita refined it, but doggone it, Colan perfected it. The whole physicality of Daredevil is on Colan's shoulders. Everything we think of with Daredevil started with Colan. He didn't just push the ball forward, he ran it to the end zone, did a Kirby shuffle, and then took it to the other end zone just for good kicks. That is how much Colin affected the look and the mood of Daredevil. And that's that's not to take away from other artists. Ramita, Wood, again, they were big contributors, they were the foundation, but Colin was the two-story house and the picket fence on top of that foundation. And of course, Spider-Man and Daredevil meet up, it's a very short action sequence. At the end, Daredevil asks Spider-Man, hey, why don't you ever smile under that mask? Because, you know, Pete's such a gloomy boy. Matt plays it off a little because Spider-Man's like, how do you know I'm smiling? Not realizing Daredevil's blind. And Matt says, how do you know I don't have x-ray eyes? Reminded me of the opening scene of The Tick. So, you're a superhero, huh? And what sort of costume is that supposed to be? Costume? No costume, friend. I am simply The Tick. Well, you can't be The Tick. Ticks are arachnids. They got eight legs. How do you know I don't? Ticks suck blood. Do you suck blood? Uh, yeah, I suck blood all the time. Yeah, right. Look, I got a straw right here, pal. You want a demonstration? Uh, no, 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 thanks, no. But kind of an okay opening. Let me get you caught up to speed from where we left off last week to where we are this week. If you didn't go back and listen to episode three and four, which is fine. We're still cool. You can still come to my birthday party. So when we left off last week, Spider-Man had gotten some confusion as far as who was Daredevil and accused Foggy of being Daredevil, which Foggy took the ball and ran with. That's the second ball running reference in this episode. But seeing that he's impressing Karen, Foggy pretends to be Daredevil. So he arranges, well, to get a Daredevil costume made for him and works with this person named Melvin Potter to not only create the costume, but set up a fake attack. With the idea being that Foggy would seem to defeat Melvin, who's a big guy, and looked much better in Karen's eyes. Remember, college-educated gentleman. But Potter decided to become the gladiator and actually attack Foggy, just to prove superheroes are pretty much worthless. Luckily, the real Daredevil swung in and saved Foggy's hide, and the gladiator was arrested. Unfortunately, once he was arrested, Gladiator told everybody that Foggy Nelson was Daredevil. And this news began to circulate through the underworld, making Foggy a target. Along the way, the masked marauder sprung the gladiator. Even though they bristled a little bit, they made a play to run the Magia, or Magia, which is, of course, the Marvel Universe equivalent of the Mafia. So Daredevil had to go through the underworld and basically fight them off for Foggy's sake and get the word out that, hey, Foggy Nelson is not Daredevil, taking Foggy off the target scopes. Marauder and Gladiator came back again, which put Daredevil in a position to fight the Tri-Android. Yes, it's absolutely as ridiculous as it sounds. It was an android that ran off the power of three different people. But the, the main thing about that storyline was Daredevil saved the gladiator from a lion, ending the team up. 
So going forward, Matt fought Leapfrog in issue 25, which Leapfrog is a villain who is exactly what you picture, a man in a frog suit who bounces and jumps high. But along the way, he created his fictional twin brother, Mike Murdock. Now Matt plays the role of both Matt himself and Mike, who's a more aloof, a little bit more goofy, and, well, sighted. So Mike can see, and Mike is the one who everybody believes is Daredevil. Are you keeping up with this yet? It sounds like Days of Our Lives. I know it, but it's wonderful in its goofiness. But with Leapfrog captured, that brought us to issue 26, or episode 4, where Stiltman returned to team up with Leapfrog. And that issue ended with the Stiltman defeated, but Marauder took him from the scene, which brings us up to the point where Marauder is making his pitch for a team-up since, well, Gladiator ran out on him. It's actually kind of a smooth storytelling. Gladiator's brought off the table, Stiltman's brought on, and for some reason the Marauder feels he has to team up with somebody. That doesn't put me in a position to have a lot of faith in this person as an arch-villain. I mean, we're talking about the Diet Coke of villains. But, of course, we have this helicopter, and it has a disintegration force field around it. I've been talking about the money that the Marauder has been putting into these gigs. A helicopter is yet another large expense. Which boggles my mind because this man is clearly well-to-do in order to afford a lot of these things like a blimp, minions, things like that. So what's his end game? That I'm not sure. But Stiltman is clearly impressed with the disintegration force field. Wouldn't anybody be, I guess? But we do have one note where Stiltman uses his hydraulic legs. Just to give you an idea of how formidable Stiltman actually is, the stilts move faster than the eye can follow. So in an instant, or half an instant, Stiltman goes from face-to-face, -face, about 6 foot, to about 20 foot, or more. I don't care who you are, that's pretty impressive. But that's the rundown of where we are, we've got the first act under our belt, let's see how things play out from here. Later that evening, Matt, Foggy, and Karen work in the office when Stiltman floods it with knockout gas. Matt comes to just as Stiltman turns the occupants of Nelson and Murdoch into hostages, loading them into the masked marauder's helicopter. They leave a note for Daredevil, not realizing that they've just succeeded in capturing the hero. When Matt revives, he spills the secret of Daredevil's secret identity. He's really Matt's twin brother, Mike Murdock, who we all know is really Matt himself. So naturally, the masked marauder sends Stiltman to find Mike Murdock by staging a robbery to make Daredevil come to him. But another hero takes notice of Stiltman pilfering a jewelry shop, the Amazing Spider-Man. Before we get into that action sequence, I'm going to stop for a moment and kind of go over what just happened. It all happens so fast, especially the assault on the law offices. It's fast, it's to the point. Matt has no reaction time. And even as it's happening, Matt only has a moment to think, Hey, I've been looking for Stiltman. He found me. Sounds like a bad sitcom line, doesn't it? And they leave Daredevil a note. So, in only moments, the occupants are knocked out, taken hostage, and a note is left for Daredevil. So I guess the rest of the plan is to just fly casual until he arrives. Don't get jittery, Luke. There's a lot of command ships. Keep your distance, though, Chewie. But don't look like you're trying to keep your distance. How am I supposed to do that? I don't know. Fly casual. And you know, really the thing about the Masked Marauder saga, and the reason I wanted to bring these issues out, was not only to connect to older episodes of the show and fill in some more gaps of this era, but it's also the story of a sad, sad search for an arch enemy for our hero, Daredevil. Masked Marauder is not a valiant attempt to find an archenemy. It's half-ass. It's weak-themed. And in the past, I've put this on the table. Why? Why was it so hard to find a good arch-nemesis? Why did it take until Bullseye to get a decent villain, and then we still have to steal a Spider-Man villain in the Kingpin to flesh this out? 
Daredevil is a great concept. And hopefully I've proven that by now with 40, 45 episodes before, and 46 including this one. He's an atypical superhero, very much in the Marvel fashion, in that his blindness, his, his handicap, is his power. He's got a great look with the devil costume. Why is it so hard to find a character to oppose him? I mean, what have we been through? We've been through the owl. That's the closest you get to a really good idea of a concept. Because owls are creatures of the night. They're predatory. It makes sense. I get it. But you've also had the matador. You've had the gladiator, who is a great villain, but not quite arch-nemesis material. A very good grunt. A very good muscle. But nobody that really has that quality where they can come back again and again and again and go toe-to-toe with Daredevil and rock his world. Even though I love Stiltman, he's definitely not arch-nemesis material. Because, as I've said before, your arch-nemesis, your primary arch-nemesis, should be opposite and just to the left. And the closest I can figure is, as far as the character, I mean, we've talked about Bullseye and how he opposes it, but you're looking at somebody like Echo from David Max run, who was deaf, but visually could mimic anything and learn anything through that. Do we get anything approaching this? No, the Mask Marauder has nothing to do with that. It's the most generic villain ever. Marauder has no real personality. He has no real identity. You look at him and the only thing you think is, wow, that's generic. And overall, he's just a general failure. Anytime that Daredevil's gone against him, Marauder is not proven to be much of a fighter. Sure, he's a schemer, but his schemes are ridiculous. We're going to steal an engine and sell it. That was his first scheme. Okay, and then he tries to take over the Magia, the biggest crime cartel on the planet, and totally whiffs it. I mean, big time. There's nothing here to substantiate a villain. You look at somebody like the Kingpin. The Kingpin is powerful. He does run the New York crime scene. He can put Daredevil's world into turmoil and does. Or even Bullseye. Bullseye is physically adequate to go up against Daredevil. Daredevil sees a challenge in Bullseye because these two can fight each other to a standstill. We've seen him do it. The Marauder just, he's almost a parody of supervillains. And it turns this idea that, well, we're trying to fit Daredevil with a good arch nemesis. Daredevil doesn't have a Green Goblin, or a Red Skull, or a Tuma, or Loki, or all the other villains that really fit their characters that they're opposing. So to circle this back around to my main point in this moment, why? Why was it so hard to find a nemesis that was adequate enough to challenge Daredevil, thematically correct to go against Daredevil, and written in a way that you really find the character compelling? Magneto is probably the best example I can think of to to put side by side. The X-Men have somebody who is of their own kind in being a mutant, but he's on a power level that is well beyond them. So he's a challenge. He's of their own cloth but it is an ideology that's directly opposed. So with Daredevil, for me, in my opinion, if I were writing it in the 1960s, you know, well before I was born, Daredevil would have to have somebody who is an agent of chaos. And I know you're thinking Heath Ledger's Joker. Take that off the table. That's not what I'm referring to. Slightly similar idea. Somebody who is an agent of chaos because Daredevil is an agent of justice. So by Daredevil balancing the equations in the courtroom and as a superhero, you'd have to have somebody who upsets the balance. Who not only does that, they obliterate it. So let's start there. We have an agent of chaos. We'll put that on the table. Thematically, you have a devil costume. Maybe you could do something with an angel. 
So an angel of chaos. Okay, now we're cooking. Now we're cooking, right? And to try to tie it into the cloth, much like Magneto was a mutant, this person would be a judge or a police officer or a police commissioner. And there you go. There you go. I have just spitballed my way into an actual villain that would have worked much better than almost any other villains thrown at Daredevil prior to Bullseye. Gladiator and Stiltman, they're great as soldiers, but they're not a credible, ongoing threat. They're not Lex Luthor caliber or Magneto caliber, where they can come back, and each time, they're not only powerful, they're more powerful. So we have an angel of chaos who's actually a judge, who is basically creating chaos to keep crime going, so he can judge more. With angels, you also have the judgment idea. That's copyright me, by the way, 2015. Mark that down. But I've spent way, way too much time on that. And it's funny, for as much as Daredevil has fought Spider-Man's villains, Spider-Man is now getting into the action. While Daredevil's tied up, he's fighting Stiltman. And that's where we're going to pick up for the last leg of this story. While Spider-Man engages Stiltman, Matt stages an escape from the helicopter by rising against the masked Marauder. When the Marauder shoots at him, Matt uses the laser beam to break his bonds and quote-unquote falls out of the helicopter, changing to Daredevil while hanging off the side. Daredevil swings back into the vehicle and finally goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Marauder, and in the fight he unmasks the villain to reveal Old Man Dithers who owns the haunted- wait, I've done that joke. It's actually Old Man Farnham who owns the building where Nelson and Murdoch have their offices. Wow, that's a little close to home. Sometimes your jokes can be on the nose, folks. But it won't matter for long as the fight continues and Farnham is knocked into his own disintegration force field. Then the helicopter finds Stiltman, who aims a high-tech gun at Daredevil, but the river water he's standing in short-circuits the gun and Stiltman's suit, so his legs retract, and his suit is powerless, making him easy prey for the police to pick up. And with the explanation that Matt was saved by Mike, his, you know, fake twin brother that's actually him, everybody heads home, because it's been a busy day, even for Daredevil. And that closes the issue. Folks, I'm gonna level with you. I don't have any page-by-page -page ideas on this. I'm just going to go directly to the final verdict. This issue falls apart completely in the third act. It wasn't great up to that point, but it disintegrates more than the Masked Marauder in his force field. There's no climactic ending, just sort of checking off things. You know, get rid of Stiltman, check. Reveal Masked Marauder's identity, check. And as I mentioned, the Marauder was not a valiant attempt. It was a half-ass attempt at making an arch enemy for Daredevil, which is why he didn't stay around. In fairness, as far as the pacing, Gene Colan was known for just indulging in his art. Multiple panels on a doorknob, and then he realizes, oh, I'm running out of page space, so he wraps up the story at the very last moment, and that may be what happened here. But, let's be honest, if the Masked Marauder was a worthwhile villain, if he was a compelling character to begin with, there'd be no reason to kill him off in such a definitive way. We see him basically fall into that force field. And it should come as no shock that Farnham was the Marauder. He's been hanging around for several issues. He's really the only suspect. And you know, so far, I've not regretted a single issue I've pulled to cover on this show. Because my theory is even the bad issues have good qualities because you can have fun tearing them up. Unfortunately, this one is just a train wreck. It's not fun to tear up. It's not fun to look at and laugh. It's not ridiculous on par with what we'll be covering next week. It's just very by-the-books, it's very lopsided in terms of plot, in terms of pacing, and we never really gain any interest in the Marauder. We don't care when he dies. So yeah, I'm going to admit, I don't have a lot to say on this issue. It really just let me down. And you're wondering, well, Dave, why why did you put it on the docket? Why did you cover it? Because I don't know how it's going to play out 
on air until I sit down to do the notes. So yeah, I regret this one. It was just, it was dismal is what it was. I mean, the Gene Colon art was gorgeous. But the way it's structured, Colon has no real places to, to really stand out. There's no definitive art pieces. It's very packed with small panels. And again, it feels like everybody's checking off the checkboxes of things that need to be done. So, I'm done talking about this issue. Let's talk about the future of the show and much better issues to come. Next week, emails will return. This is the last episode that I've done and, and produced before the new episodes, beginning with 37, started coming out in January. So, what you're listening to up to this point is a lot of pre-production. A lot of things I had in the can ready to go for 2015, giving me a comfortable lead, but I'm ready to bring emails back in and, and get back in touch with you fine folks, you fine listeners. Not only are emails returning, Thor is coming next week, several great episodes coming up, and then, of course, episode 50. And I've got to make episode 50 special, and it hit me how I'm going to do that. So prepare for an episode that, well, doesn't have much Daredevil in it. That's going to be followed by some very different kind of episodes. We're going to be exploring a lot of different things over about five or six episodes past episode 50, just to break up the format and freshen it up for a little bit before going back into, well, what we normally do. And I have, basically I have a floater episode. I am going to cover the Daredevil Netflix series. I feel obligated to, and I feel the desire to. So I have that for whatever the, the definitive release date is set. I'll probably binge watch them, make notes, and come in and give you a, an overall impression. So, a lot of normal episodes, like next week, several episodes about comics in general, and different character spotlights, and then a Netflix episode coming down the road. A lot of great things coming in 2015. I'm very excited. But, as you're hearing this, spring is right around the corner. And I couldn't be more excited about that. I always look forward to spring because winter feels so long and so dark. But ahead comes a great year in 2015. As I mentioned next week, Thor emails Daredevil's wackiest adventures in the pages of Daredevil number 30. So in seven days, I'll be back. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Never far away, whenever danger's near. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, he must hide his sadness and fight the